0: Welcome to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Salis, and I have an awesome, very special guest with me today. Let me introduce our listeners to Debbie Shear. Hi, Debbie. Hi. Thanks for coming and hanging out today.
1: Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here.
0: This is great. Um, Debbie, we're going to get into your story a little bit here in just a second. Okay. And uh, hear about what you've been through and what you do now and what you bring to the table, all of that kind of fun stuff. But I want to say just right off the top, one of the reasons that I'm excited to be getting to know you, we we, we both live here in Denver and we have some mutual friends and then we started crossing paths Mm -hmm. and now we're trying to cross paths intentionally. One of the things I love about you is that you just have a fantastic sense of humor, and you're not afraid to use it.
1: I appreciate that. I'd love you to tell my children that. That would be fantastic, if you could put in a good word. <laughs> Sydney and you. Charlie don't always yes.
0: find... Uh... They,
1: they tell me on the regular I'm not funny, now, which is kind of fuel to keep going. <laughs> I, what else is there?
0: I saw you posted something the other day with one of them. Was it Charlie that was... Pretending to be dead oh, on the floor?
1: Yes. He was asked to... We were doing our chores, and his chore was to vacuum. And when I came around the corner, he was face down in the middle of the floor. And I said, what's happening? You need to be vacuuming. And his response, which is interesting, was dead people don't vacuum. Yes. So
0: He hasn't learned the mute part of playing dead yet. Huh? Exactly. He still thinks dead people can talk. So
1: that's my life.
0: But you... you I think you said you were going to encourage him to... To change his belief and learn that you could, in fact, motivate a dead person to vacuum.
1: I, I felt confident in my abilities. I'm going to guess you won. To, that I one. did win that one. That's good. I did win. He he was resurrected, so to speak. I'll have to talk to Charlie
0: <laughs> about the. Uh, the uh, need to keep the mouth shut when when playing dead
1: he's it's a, that's a hard lesson right he's nine I'm 52 I can't say I've yeah. learned that fully
0: <laughs> no you're right but we do have a little bit of an advantage on the number of lessons we've learned true well this is great so um, we've we've done a panel event together and I've you know just started getting into your stuff and like I said mutual friendships and the the thing that I'm most excited about us starting this interaction is that there's a place for humor in these heavy, heavy subjects that we're talking about. Um, when when you're dealing with alcoholism and relationships surrounding alcoholism, and just e- even if we don't go so far as to use the addiction term alcoholism, but we just talk about the need to look at our lives and our drinking, um, there's not a lot of humor out there in the big bad world about that. But And I'm not saying it's a funny subject because it's not, but we can, we, can, we can still address it in such a way that we can appreciate uh, the folly mm-hmm. in our ways and and look back and giggle a little bit without, without not um, giving it the due justice that it deserves as far as seriousness. And so here I am getting all serious as I try to describe it. I, yeah. I think it's okay for us to kind of laugh at ourselves a little bit. In fact, one of the things that you shared with me um, when we were having coffee one day... Mm-hmm was that you try to use humor to kind of, as an icebreaker.
1: Am I describing that right? Can would, you talk a little bit about that? I can. I think that is a great way to describe it. And I like what you said, that we're, there's not enough humor in these stories, in, in our experiences. And I. that's what I basically do, is I use humor to really chip away at the the wall that we have up, right? When it comes to talking about really difficult conversations. And I I had someone a few years ago say, well, you can't joke about that particular topic. Right. And I said, but we're not joking about it. The topic is still incredibly serious. What humor does, I believe, is it elevates the entire experience. Yeah. Right. And once we do that, we can actually go deeper in those conversations. And yeah. so that's, I use humor to talk about, I mean, I think I've shared this with you. I mean, transracial adoption, you know, adoption in general, mental health. Oh, that's a real um, knee
0: slapper of an issue. You right? Know. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah.
1: And, you know, white privilege, yet again, another conversation that people don't want to have. And it's not that white privilege is funny. It's not that addiction is funny, but there are funny moments throughout your story.
0: Well, and, and bringing people around to open up. Is so difficult with these issues. Exactly. Um, one of the, you know, I, I would put at the top of the list of reasons that addiction is the epidemic that it is and that it's not getting better, it's actually getting worse, is because of the stigma that's associated with addiction mm-hmm. and our refusal to discuss it. And the fact that when we do talk about it, it's only in hushed whispers, with our head down, we're embarrassed about, you know, Uncle Jim can't get his shit together. Um, and we won't just address this as a as a medical a, a brain disease and a, a legitimate neurological issue. And if we can't get people to talk about it on the serious side, we we got to get them to start somewhere.
1: Absolutely. And if
0: this is the start somewhere, I, I am all for it. I was I was at an event last weekend. I actually wrote about it this week with eight other aspiring uh, book writers, eight eight people trying to publish a book and. Three of them on the sly, because I said my topic was alcoholism, either, you know, on the way to or from the bathroom or during a break, Mm -hmm. three of them Mm. told me about their problem with addiction. So 50% of the population of this class, and for all I know, the other four were just keeping their mouths shut, right? Right. Absolutely. But, But even though I had openly talked about my issue, I thought maybe that's enough to to get the conversation yeah. going if there was such a conversation to be had but no it was yeah it was hushed whispers and let me let me tell you what's going on yeah. with me on the side
1: yeah i think you get that a lot i'm oh, sure yeah. you do yeah but i also think humor laughter uh, both because we know you can find something humorous and not laugh about it and yeah. we also know you can be laughing at something that is really not funny but i think what it does is it allows a group of people to take this collective breath this collective sigh of relief and that changes your brain chemistry. It just does. Yeah. You know, it changes how things are working in it. And we get out of this fight or flight mode and we can really focus and be in it. And I've seen that. There's never been a time where I've spoken to a group where I've watched the crowd chuckle and then super tense up and, and really be stressed. Well, it's never gone that direction. And
0: it's logical because if you think about what... Full-on comedy. If you go to a comedy show today, m- many comedians work in self-deprecating humor. They're making fun of themselves, and when they start talking about their shortcomings or their insecurities, and when the whole place starts laughing, they aren't laughing at that person. They're right. laughing because they've got the same right. issues going on. Right. And when you sit there and you see that, you, you I have, I have had the experience where I look around and go, Oh, I knew that comedian had that problem. But I didn't know everyone in this yeah. room shared that yeah. problem with me. But the way they're laughing, clearly Obviously, they know what this guy's talking exactly. about. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And and that's partly because humor connects us. Mm-hmm. Right? We're social creatures. We need connection. It's how we survive. It's how we've survived and how we will continue to survive. And I think that part of the problem today, without not taking too much of a left turn, is that those connections are fractured mm-hmm. and we're struggling. And I think humor using humor appropriately helps to rebuild connections. Yes. Repair really would be a better word and then strengthen repair and then develop new ones. And that I'm convinced not to sound Pollyanna because you know me, I am not that person, right. but I think humor has just an incredible potential to help and heal
0: uh, yeah, I don't think that's a left turn at all. One of the things that I've realized in working in addiction and recovery now for a few years, first of all, when when it was time for me to get sober, I was not going to AA for any reason. I just wasn't going to do it. The, the stigma that surrounded AA was, to me, worse than the stigma that surrounded alcoholism. I've since grown, and I've written lots about this, I've since grown to really appreciate the, the um, fellowship of AA and... And it saved millions of lives, literally, and saved the lives of many of my friends. And so I'm very thankful for the existence of AA, but I was not going at mm-hmm. that time. Nothing was going to make me. And so what I did, the initial stage of me getting sober, was me reading a ton of memoir, mostly. Mm-hmm. Some clinical stuff, but a lot of stories of other alcoholics. Caroline Knapp and Sarah Heppeler are my, two of my favorites. But what I didn't realize... Was that was for me a form of connection? I felt so isolated, like I'm the only guy in the world that's got this yeah. problem. I'm not the gutter drunk that's pissing himself and, you know, spending every dime he's got on booze. Right. I'm in this weird middle where I can still somehow function, and I must be the only person in the world that exists like this. Yeah. And when I read about other people, it. I mean, I. This sounds like I'm going too far, but I fell in love with these people yeah, who wrote yeah. this way because they got me and they were the only people that did. Right. And it took a long time for me to look back and realize, oh, that's connection. That is a form of connection. This person, these people that I read about, they don't know me from Adam. Right. Um, but to me, they are some of the most important people in my life. And so now we talk, everyone who, who works in this field, everyone who deals with addiction and recovery, talks a lot about Uh, connection being the opposite of addiction not sobriety being the opposite but connection being the opposite and how important it is and so i think any way you can connect is really important and and humor is an entree to that then Mm -hmm. i'm all about it one of the things that i another thing that i know you and i share is i'm not against it philosophically Mm -hmm. But the the whole rainbows and unicorns <laughs> approach to so, social media. Yes. The, hey, I'm going to bed sober tonight. Click like if you're going to bed yes. sober too. Yes. That works for some people. Sure. I get that. It must because it's it's all Instagram is in my opinion. Yeah. But it doesn't work for me at all. Mm-hmm. And if, if that allows some people to connect, you know, go get them, Tiger. You go be you. But I need connection to look differently. And I know we're not alone. Right. And, and right. this – this ability to laugh at ourselves when we connect, laugh at ourselves and our situation, and and get the conversation rolling, is really important.
1: I agree.
0: I, I agree. Debbie, can I get you to tell us a little bit about uh, what you know, what you've been through the last however many years, however far back you want to go that's yeah. brought you to this place, and then we'll talk about what you're doing these days.
1: Wow. Um. Gosh, you didn't expect so, me to open it up quite that I know, wide, yeah, I know, I know. I need some more. I need some more boundaries. You there, know, there I'm was, trying to
0: think. I heard a guy speak the other day. He he stood up and he was asked to introduce himself, and he said, "Well, I'm 64 years old. Where would you like me to start? Exactly. How about 1892?" Exactly. And everyone in the audience was like, "Oh my God, no!" I You're know. Starting you all. need to
1: corral me in many a years bit. before
0: you were born this isn't going to go well and he yeah. we did talk his introduction was 15 minutes it was awful
1: what one five or five, zero? One five. One five.
0: it's a long that's a
1: healthy robust introduction yeah when
0: the first seven minutes didn't include time frame when you were alive that was a lot.
1: <laughs> wow um i you know I, i'll start with you just interrupt me if it's not what you want me to chat about, I guess. okay, Maybe the best thing. So where I am today, um, you know, really happened because of this massive catalyst in my life, which was my ex-wife asking for a divorce out of the blue. I think I shared that with you,
0: but it's 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 important. it Please, is, yeah, yeah, it
1: is. and so that happened seven years ago. actually, it's February, so this is my seventh. What do you? How do you name that? Mm. Divorce anniversary? Happy freedom. divorce? Can we it, call it freedom? freedom? I guess. Freedom anniversary. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Thank that you. feels really good. Um, and so it was quite honestly. I had been working for a nonprofit that I loved, doing work I loved with people I respected, and we had adopted our first son, and we were we knew we wanted to adopt a second child, and we collectively made the decision for me to stay at home. Okay. I did that for quite a few years. And we adopted our second child. And then, quite honestly, out of the blue, one February came this this just, you know, a frying pan to the face kind of experience. And I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. I had been a stay-at-home mom. Uh, that was my new identity, was a mom. That's an entirely different conversation, you know, when you leave a job you love. And I decided because I was so fearful that I would try something that I thought would be more terrifying to take my mind off the first thing. That's probably not healthy advice, or maybe it is. Oh, I don't, I don't know. know. I think that's great. I don't great. know. I'm glad I did it. And what I decided at that time was to try stand-up comedy. I contacted a friend who owned a bar. She said, yes, come on in. Fast forward to the the night that was supposed to be my turn at the mic. And I remember being downstairs hearing my name and walking up the stairs thinking this is how I die right (laughs) like I was very panicking panicky and I thought I will most likely step on that stage and have a heart attack yeah and this will be my story right like at least I got to the stage but that's 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 the end and I did my three minutes five minutes I don't remember but I do know when you're new to a mic three minutes feels like an eternity forever right and I went back downstairs and I thought oh I'm still here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That snowballed into embracing other things. I was then asked to start emceeing. Now, now wait. Before we leave that first night, actually, I've got a couple of questions. That's
0: fair. Did... So your three or five minutes, did you start to build a relationship with the crowd? Like, could you get some feedback from them? Did it feel good?
1: So I just would like to apologize to anyone who's <laughs> listening was there that night. My comedy consisted of a lot of breakup humor, which if anyone has had to sit through a comedian doing breakup comedy, it's pretty rough. Yeah. But people laughed. Because yeah. to go back to connection, every single human yes. above the age of, what, 14 can experience, understands what it feels like to have heartache. Yes. So everybody in that room had a connection. Who knows how solid it was or strong. So it did motivate me. And it kind of, it fed something, right? Fed yeah. something. And so they asked me to come back. I started to do more standup. I loved it. And that evolved into me creating comedy and education shows that I felt needed to be created. That's um, And that's
0: where we get into the, Using humor to break into a serious Absolutely. topic. Now, a lot of our listeners. Um, well, first, when you when you talk about uh, breakup humor and and how hard that is to, to sit through, even though it's funny. Um, I used to in college. Sherry and I both worked in a bar. Oh. And this we bar, the, the music. No, no. This was it was the highest sales grossing bar in the state of Indiana wow. at Indiana University. Big. Big, just college, drunk-fest bar, right? But the music setup for... This is the early 90s, was oh, yeah. a jukebox. Oh, yeah. And we would have people come in and put $10 into the jukebox and play all the sad songs. Just and try their their beer yeah. about their breakup. And we had a skip button behind the bar, and we would just start skipping songs yeah. until... Because we didn't know who it was until the sad sack would walk up, and we would... You know, we would throw a $10 bill at them and be like, get out of here. Yeah. There's your money back. We Don't, can't help We're you. not, yeah, <laughs> we're, that's not happening to We're me. not
1: skilled enough. That's out of our pay grade. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So three
0: okay. to five minutes of that kind of humor, I bet great, but probably a half an hour and you have people slitting the wrists. It's at the rough. Point. Yeah. yeah, it's rough. So because many of our listeners mm-hmm. um, listen, to, because Sherry and I talk a lot about our relationship, so it's a relationship-minded audience, I want to back up just a minute to, at the, the frying pan to the face. Yes. Now we're going to talk about your relationship with alcohol eventually, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't really in play at the, that wasn't part of the divorce. Was it? No,
1: not that I was told. No, right. I don't think so. So it
0: was, it was a shock to you that this was happening. Did, and if I'm getting too personal, you can Mm -hmm. tell me to mind my own business, but was there, did a fight, not a physical fight, but did you, did you fight for it? Did you say, you know, Let's try counseling. What are you doing? This well, is crazy, or was it, or was she just done at that point?
1: Yeah, you know, here's the interesting thing. Now, of course, looking back, we have a fresh lens, we're in a different place. Of course, now that I look back, I go, well, the writing was on the wall for 11 years, okay. right? Of course, so I can see things, I can pick apart things. When you're in the moment, that is absolutely impossible because you're blinded by fear, rage, you know, sorrow, grief, all of it. Um, she did not want to go to therapy. She what? What A good friend explained it like this to me. You know, Debbie, she's probably been working through this for a few years.
0: She's already done her therapy. She's
1: done her therapy to get to this point where she felt brave enough to share. And now you're starting from this point forward. So she's already processed therapy that it's not what she wants. She's moved on, you yeah. know, emotionally. So we didn't. And that's one of the most tragic things about, I think, you know, people who get divorced, especially with kids. Yeah. Especially with kids. That's, that's is really the ultimate heartbreak. Yeah. I think not that you are going to work to salvage a relationship because I'm a firm believer. Sometimes they need to be done, Yeah, right? Relationships have a lifespan, but that you're not willing to go to therapy to work on how do we dissolve this in the way that's the healthiest for our children. Yeah. That's, that's, My plea, when I have friends who come to me and they're contemplating divorce, that is absolutely 100% what I share.
0: Well, it's so it's such a life-changing experience for all people involved, especially the kids, Mm. because they're in such a developmental stage. And it's taken me until just recent years when I've kind of been in this... I mean, addiction and mental health are the same thing, really. Definitely cross paths over and over. And I've learned how much of our being comes from our childhood and and i'm talking about good and bad and i'm not saying your parents are necessarily bad for you to have things that happen when you were a kid that are hard for you to deal with as an adult but there's just so much there and so the idea of making that the best possible scenario for kids it's it's way more important than i realized it was i thought ah if you go through some stuff as a kid makes you tough yeah oh man it makes you push stuff down that you're never going to deal with and cause you all kinds of problems later in life exactly so that's excellent advice that if even if it's it's time for it to be over, therapy can be very helpful in, oh, in that process.
1: Yeah, that transitional phase is key.
0: It, it's very interesting to me because, you know, Sherry and I are in the process of surviving recovery from addiction, and I, mm. I talk a lot about and I write a lot about the fact that I think uh, addicted relationships, alcoholic relationships specifically, they can adapt to the alcoholism mm. if... If it just means shutting down and isolating each Mm. other and learning to deal with the person who's drinking too much, a lot of relationships stay together in that situation. Certainly, the divorce rate is higher for alcoholic relationships than for non-alcoholic relationships, but a lot of them survive that, and then they get to the sobriety phase, and that wall that used to separate them has vanished, Uh. and you've got to kind of deal with that, and you know, it was, it was the hardest thing that I've ever been through. And, and I think Sherry would agree. The hardest thing we've ever been through is dealing with the resentment and trying to yeah. regain trust and all of that.
1: Right, right. And so
0: a, a lot of our listeners, a lot of my readers too, they're, they're in that space where they're trying to decide, can we make this work or not? Right. And I always feel terrible because I feel like my advice should always be, oh, stay together, you can make it work. But when I hear some of the scenarios that people present to me, Sometimes the answer is, this just isn't a good situation, and you know. So I always tell people, you need to protect yourself first, and and the children first, and then if there's something salvageable, then great. But it's very refreshing to hear you talk about the fact that even if the, the decision and the right path for that particular situation is let's go our separate ways, mm-hmm. there are still things that can be done to oh, yeah. to protect the children. And we didn't do that. Yeah. And that's a regret. you yeah. know. And,
1: and I'm, I hope she has that same regret because that's, you know, as parents, that's really our <laughs> fundamental job. So... Yes. And so from there, it just, it was more comedy, which was very healing and very eye-opening and, and helped, you know, I'm going to be honest that when your partner comes to you out of the blue and asks for a divorce after almost 11 years, your, my self-esteem was very shattered. Sure. It was rough because of course I've taken it all on. It's me. Obviously it's me. Um, and so it, being able to be on a stage, on a mic, and feel empowered was very healing from that angle. But, but how do you even step on the stage when, yeah. you're, when your self-esteem has taken that hit? You know, I felt like, okay, basically nobody can tell me anything that's going to be more shocking okay. or worse than what I've just heard a week ago. You know, whenever it was a month ago. And that's why when people ask me, you know, aren't you afraid of hecklers? I could never do that because of hecklers. I'm so honest in saying I have two children. They are two young boys. I get heckled all day long. Sure. There's nothing that a drunk, you know, audience member can say that I probably haven't heard. Yeah, And... Right? Yeah. So, well, there it is.
0: there's a lot of value in taking that hit to our self-esteem. I don't, I don't know. Is the ego there? I think it's there to protect us to, to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. But but we certainly, I know as a drinker, it's so funny because I'm, a, I'm a, just a better human being as a non-drinker. Right. But I was way more proud of myself as a drinker. Yeah. And so, when I sobered up and I took that hit to the self-esteem that, no, I can't moderate this. No, this mm-hmm. isn't for me anymore. I'm not as good of a... Hu- person as i think i am and then i started on the relationship side to see you know my wife is still here because of the kids yeah she's not here because i'm this awesome person i thought i was and from that position of just being crushed self-esteem wise i was able to be in in my writing and talking just really vulnerable people say to me all the time how can you share that stuff? How can you be that honest? And I'm like, I don't know. There's nothing you could do to make me feel worse about myself than I did at one right. point. I'm feeling better now, but, right. but so, so yeah, what are you going to do? Tease me about something that I've already shared with you. Yeah, what are you going exactly. to call me an alcoholic? I called myself an alcoholic.
1: Well, and the interesting thing about that, especially sharing from the stage is, you know, a lot of people will say exactly that. Cause I do share very emotional things. I've done storytelling shows about anxiety and depression and mental health stuff. And people will say that's so much, right? That don't you? But there is a sense of interesting control when you're the one choosing to share. Yes. Right. So a lot of people, when they hear it, they think, "Oh, that seems wildly out of control." But really, for those of us who need control, which I do, I'm a, you know, if you have anxiety, control is a big deal. That actually gives me more comfort. To speak on a mic about things that I want to share. I'm choosing to, you know, share it with an audience and have this dialogue than anything else.
0: That's interesting. I, I, have never thought of it that way, but I think you're probably right. I think what I've learned because I've never been, um, it's never bit me in the ass to be vulnerable. I know mm-hmm. for some people that that, that they, they do have that experience and then mm-hmm. they lock up and that's it for right. the rest of their lives. They'll never tell a secret. But I've always been rewarded whenever I yeah. share, and so I've never thought of that as, as an aspect of control, but I'm sure there's truth to that. I feel like as soon as I can get at least some of my stuff out there, yeah. then... I feel engaged with people, I feel connected to people, but you're probably right. Yeah. It's probably self defense too. I wanna I Oh yeah. Wanna well control you want to situation be the one a who's bit. doing it. Yeah. Right?
1: It's it's you're the one who's choosing to share. Yeah. And so I do think that gives you and I don't think that's a bad thing. No. I think you're still sharing, it's important, it's you're still being vulnerable in that share, you're still engaging in conversations.
0: Well, I love the way people open up. Back to me, mm-hmm. and and sometimes they can't do it verbally, but you can see in their eyes, like right. they'll they'll sit there with the, their jaws open and there's drool coming right. out. And they don't even notice, and they're looking at you, and you're like, oh, this person's got a, yeah. a lot of baggage, yeah, and they need to work through it. And I would love for them to tell me, and if they can't tell me, that's fine. But it's it's um, it's a really rewarding position yeah. to be in. So so you're you're doing humor, you're doing this, you're there, and you mentioned. That you started to steer toward using humor to address some really heavy subjects in in an educational way, right? Right.
1: How did you pick that? How did you say, this is the
0: avenue for me? I
1: know. Well, so my first show was called Sexcom, and it was a show about adult sex education. Because I felt like a lot of adults I I would come in contact with, they either got crappy sex ed or they didn't get it at all. So I created a show with a a woman um, who has her PhD in social work and is a sexologist, quite frankly. Um, Brilliant, brilliant person. And we would have the audience write down questions anonymously. She would answer them in a very medically accurate way. And I would provide the comedic relief, right? When we talked in the beginning, I'd provide the space to pause and laugh and take a breath. And really, my job was to make sure that people knew I would use a lot of self-deprecating humor because that's then saying, look, I'm still standing. Mm -hmm. It's okay. I'm still here. You're going to be here. And what we noticed with that show, which was so beautiful, that show ran, it still runs, but she's in Michigan. So when she comes out, we'll do it every now and then. But the beginning, the first month or two that we ran that show Uh, people were asking really uh, what most would assume are absurd questions, right? Give me an example. Really? Okay. So we had a question where someone said, can you put a bowling ball in your vagina? (laughs) All right. I don't know if my son wrote that. I'm not sure. He was not in the audience. But now you could, you don't know who's asking that question. And... The truth is, to answer that the right way, yes, your vagina is a muscle. It will stretch. Think about childbirth. Are you serious? Right? Yes, sure. I thought I knew a lot about vaginas. Well, listen, I you guess can I got learn, too big of a vagina ego. You can, you have a vagina ego, and I'm here to tell you right now. A bowling <laughs> ball, not
0: a, not a nine pin, not the little like softball size. You're talking a.
1: I don't know if we clarify. Okay. I mean, we just I made an assumption about.
0: Try to clarify here, either. Bowling ball, but, but still.
1: You know, and I, what I think happened is, I think there's a porn out there, some porn that maybe shows this. Maybe this person wanted to know if that was true. Well, technically, yes, you could if you strengthen and, and stretch that muscle. Sure. Of course, right? Huge babies come out of the vagina, so we know there is the capacity. But really, it's why would you? Yes, right? Like that's that's a question now for the person to think about on their own time. But what we noticed over the course of time is when people started to feel safe and comfortable and knew that there was no shame in that room that every single question was a really good valid question they really started to open up yeah and ask very good questions yeah very good so it was that's how i i think comedy and education can work and work really well together is to get a message out create a space where people feel comfortable they feel open they're willing to be a little more vulnerable and then you can learn that
0: particular show. And you and I have talked about this, but that particular show is, was that the first thing you did in, in humor and education yes. kind of combined? Mm-hmm. I think that is fascinating from the standpoint that whether you develop an addiction to alcohol or you're just like everybody else, mm-hmm. most of us are our, our first sexual experiences There is some connection between alcohol Mm. and, you know, you're, whether high school or college, you're experimenting with alcohol Mm -hmm. and that leads to experimenting sexually. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that alcohol does is it makes us very selfish, Mm. whether we like it or not. Spe- especially males, right? It makes us. I, I know what I'm in this for. This is all about me mm. and my satisfaction, mm-hmm. and my satisfaction is so not even related to your satisfaction. Mm. And then when you when you pair that with, like you said, just the poor sex ed that we got yeah. in what I guess high school or middle school or whatever when we were kids, um, you know, which was be sure to wrap it so you don't get a disease right. or, or cause a pregnancy. No talk about pleasure or what what right, causes pleasure. Right. I mean, the male's pleasure is pretty self explanatory. Right, but but pleasure for the female is just like a non-existent topic.
1: Well, intimacy was never discussed. Yeah, right. Yeah, and really, when you think about it. The older you get, most people I know, the older they get, they crave intimacy. Yeah. They love sex still, but really what they crave is intimacy, which is what? Connection. Yeah. So, and and intimacy, if
0: if something's bad in the relationship, there's no amount of uh, cuddling or Mm -hmm. caressing or whatever that can bring about intimacy. Intimacy Mm -hmm. starts way before the bedroom. Right. And so, for those of us that have dealt with these, alcohol addiction problems um you know we learn in this experimental phase and we don't learn the right stuff at all right. male or female mm-hmm. um i know and sherry and i have talked about this but from from her side of it she learned to to use sex as you know a way to pacify me for one thing and to I, I, i'm I hesitate to say this, but but to get what she wanted. I mean that's what that's what a lot of women in that early experimental stage learn that sex is good for.
1: And some women it's just what they want is to go to bed. Yeah. They want to sleep. Yeah. If they're a mom, if they're working full time, or if they're just trying to exist in a world that's kind of difficult, yeah. They're like, Okay. Yeah. I'd love to get some sleep. Absolutely. But then <laughs>
0: so so then if we take this This Okay, we learned during the alcohol experimentation all these wrong lessons, but then the alcohol never leaves. Like in my case, I mean, it left now, but for 20-some years, Mm -hmm. we just kept on this path. And I never bothered to learn more about what could make things better. But the the bottom line is, Debbie, nothing was going to make things better because the intimacy starts way before we go into the bedroom. Exactly. And I had so destroyed the emotional connection and the trust that it was... That wasn't feasible. Right, right. So, so then we just make matters worse
1: mm-hmm.
0: through routine. And the routine And we don't is know how terrible. to talk about that. Absolutely. That's, that's
1: one of the biggest topics that we don't know how to talk about. Talk yeah. about you know, something that's taboo. It's sex and intimacy. Yeah. And it, so it was beautiful to see questions that weren't even related to sex. You know, the, the mechanics of sex. Right, right. But really bigger questions that were related to intimacy. and it, So it was beautiful. It was great. That's I love good. that show.
0: That's great. That's great. Um, so, so that show ran through when? I mean, you still we, do it occasionally. Yeah, but.
1: we did that show for quite a few years. And then when that was starting to wind down because she was moving to Michigan to teach, um, I started another show with a dear friend of mine who's I call my comedy wife. And that was called Broad-Sided Comedy, an estrogen-fueled comedy show. And we wanted to create something that would really speak towards women in their 40s and beyond and would talk about the things that society was not talking about so we wanted to talk about body image as you age and how do you develop friendships in your 40s and all of it and so we created a show that had sketch comedy and stand-up comedy and an educational component still oh wow and that was awesome that's great yeah
0: so i'm making an assumption so correct me if i'm wrong largely a For that, that's an all-female audience, yes? Well, what's
1: interesting is it started out, for sure, as an all-female audience, but towards the end of that show, we had a lot of men that showed up. Really? Yes. And I think partly because you can make any message inclusive or exclusive. Sure. So we were talking about things that we felt, as women, we were going through, but they also impacted men, and a lot of men started to come to the show. This was great. Was,
0: was that the case with the, the sex, oh, yeah. sexologist yeah. show as well?
1: Well, you know, the sexologist show, SexCom, um, it, it was a great show because it was so inclusive men, women, people who didn't identify. Like, it was just an open, free flowing, every single person yeah. could be there. That's great. And it was, it was really great to see. That's great. So, yeah.
0: You, you've, you're very passionate about women's issues. Is that fair to say? That is fair to you say. You being a woman. I am, yeah. yes.
1: I'm, I'm passionate about having autonomy over one's, um, yeah, self, basically. Okay. And just feeling empowered, right? And so whether that's reproductive rights or what have you. But, um, yeah, women's issues, GLBTQ issues, um, yeah.
0: Have you done an educational sh- show, humor education show around LGBTQ? Well, a, Stuff a huge
1: part, not directly for that particular, you know, umbrella topic, but a lot of people who came to Sexcom identified within that community. Okay. So, but we haven't done, which I would be open to, I'm always open to new show <laughs> ideas. So, yeah.
0: Where does it, when you do a show like yeah. that, like, I, I can understand how you attract the audience mm-hmm. because everybody's got an interest in these, these topics, whether we're willing to talk about them or not. How do you attract a venue? Like, where yeah. do you hold a show like that?
1: So great. Great question. I don't want to um, get,
0: like, super Denver specific. No, it's, well... But, but where in Denver do Yeah, Denver? no,
1: it's a great question because it is a real, true issue. So Sexcom, we ran. I have a good friend who owns Blush and Blue, which is a queer bar on Colfax next to Voodoo Donuts. And they just said to us, whatever you want to do, we've got your back. So we had a beautiful venue. And the other shows that I've done, Broadside and then I did a one-woman talk, um, storytelling show... You know there are some great local theaters here. Buntport Theater is wonderful; they've been fantastic. Uh, Broadside, we ended up at Clock Tower Cabaret. So the people who own Clocktower Cabaret are very supportive of women in the arts. Okay, and yeah, you need place. a good. Oh, me too. You need a good venue because part of marketing and promotion is on the shoulders of the venue, right? Yeah, and yeah. so if people know, okay, everything this venue does is good. Yeah. They're going to take a risk and come to a new show. Yeah. So having the right and, and there's got to the be a,
0: a vice versa there, right? The clock absolutely. tower has to know that you know what you're doing, or they're not going to put you on because right. their reputation's at stake. Absolutely.
1: So it is. It's a very symbiotic relationship for yeah. sure. To, but are, to,
0: are you in in most of those settings? Are you kind of unique in doing the humor education piece uh, as it contrasts with the other things that are shown there? Yeah, yeah, I
1: think we are. I think we are.
0: That's very cool. Which is cool. Have yeah. you got? Um, the, are the wheels turning? You don't have to. Tell me what the next one is, but do do you have have others?
1: I do. I have another show that... It's not a show. I'm starting an open mic night for moms.
0: Yes, I saw that. I
1: know. I'm so excited. And here's why. A lot of moms that I've been talking to, and and this kind of leads right into sobriety, really. A lot of moms who have come to me and said, oh, I'm kind of struggling with this, or I'm going to stop drinking, or this is what's going on. In our conversations, one thing that's been really crystal clear is they have said, I feel like I'm not being heard yes right they maybe have been in a relationship for 20 or more years they maybe are at a you know a job whatever their situation is a lot of moms feel that people are not listening and I you know tell this joke like I can stand in the middle of my living room screaming for my children to come down and clean up Legos and the only thing that gets them to come down is when they hear the vacuum sucking up the Legos. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's this funny but true thing. And as moms, and I want to be clear, if you identify as a mom, you're a mom. Okay. Right? It's not of human babies, right? I mean, okay. it's just yeah, if you yeah. identify as a mom, if you're this maternal character. And so I thought, really, I woke up at 3 a.m. In, in an anxiety you know, moment, which happens frequently. And I thought, well, I'll just create an open mic. And it'll be called Moms on the Mic. And moms can come and have a space where they can speak into a microphone, share their, you know, they'll have a time, they'll have a set, and there you go.
0: I know I saw on, I believe it was Facebook, that your yeah. upcoming show, you're getting a lot of attention and people are buying tickets and yeah. like it's going well. It is. But, but what I am unclear on, is this is the first time you've done it?
1: It is going to be the first time. Oh, it's the maiden how exciting. Voyage. Yeah. So, so are
0: you anticipating, I mean, people know how funny you are. Are, are you anticipating people are going to come up and try to tell jokes, or are well, they just going to tell their stuff, and this whether it's is funny what I, or not?
1: We've marketed like this, so I'm, I'm co-hosting it with my comedy wife, which feels good because we have so much fun together. Yes. We're doing it at Hope Tank, which is a local store that does so much for our community. And we're going to really take a back seat. We'll be the host, so we will offer some comedy and humor. But we're opening it up. If you want to try, you know, spoken word, do it. If you are a singer do it. If you want to do interpretive dance, we'll create the space for you. Um, But just, I think for moms, it is a very empowering experience to hold a microphone, speak into it, and fully understand that people are listening. Yes. It's a big, big deal. Yeah. And it's not happening. So we're going to see how it goes. So
0: you're you're selling tickets for people to come and Listen, watch, but are, are you also hearing from these people that, yeah, I'm going to take the mic when they're. Yes, yes, we, the, oh, yes.
1: Nice. we have some, some moms who are, are going to do it. That's great. So we're very excited. That's yeah. great. Um, let's
0: talk a little bit about your experience mm-hmm. with alcohol. Yeah. I, I think I know you well enough to think it's fair to say that you, you now you don't identify alcoholics, not the word that you use, correct. is that correct? Mm-hmm. But you got to a point where alcohol wasn't serving you anymore. Anyway. Correct. Is that fair? Yes. All right. Let's, yes. let's hear let's hear what you have to say about
1: that. And what's interesting, and you and I chatted, you know, I will be sober, it'll be two years this coming August. So it's, it's still pretty, you know, it's not it's not a week and it's not 15 years, yeah. but it is what it is. Yeah. And, have um, you ever had,
0: when you talk about it, you ever had an AA guy tell you to shut up and come back when you're five years sober? Because I get I, that a lot.
1: You know what? I don't, and it's best because yeah. I don't have tolerance for people who move through the world like that you know i'm like oh wow that's encouraging for people who are trying to make it day by day thanks thanks buddy you know but um, it's rare for me but it happens yeah and what's interesting i think i chatted with you about this over coffee just recently i've had all these aha moments right this this new ability to a fresh lens to look at my past to really notice things that i didn't notice of course when you're in it You don't notice it. sure. And I'm going to say, if you're in it and you're part of the mom culture and you're surrounding yourself with other moms who are doing the same, if not more aggressively, then you really don't notice it. Because what do I do? I would say, well, I'm not as bad as her. Yeah. I mean, whoa. That's right. So for me, I I love the taste of alcohol. Mm -hmm. I do. I love vodka, tequila. (laughs) I love it. I love wine. Um, And so I was drinking what I thought was typical. But now that I look back, I'm like, you know, you were buying your booze at Costco. That right there is a red flag. (laughs) I always joke and I say the day that I quit drinking and they noticed I hadn't been back, you know, in a few weeks. I'm sure they like lowered the flag, you know, to have, have mass and just kind of had a ceremony in the back. I don't know. I'm sure they were in mourning. But I was at a conference in Florida with a friend and we went out to dinner and this the bummer about this is that I don't have a leaving Las Vegas kind of story. Right. And as a comedian and someone who likes the stage, I'm a little disappointed. Yeah. I hate to say that, you know, it's really a boring story. We went out to dinner, we had a typical amount of booze. I remember the wine glasses being exceedingly large and our our waitress was about 75 and she would just walk around the restaurant with the bottle (laughs) in the hand. I'm sure it's what they did who knows how long ago. And she would just fill it. Yeah. So we lost track of how much we were drinking.
0: Yeah.
1: Nothing bad happened. I mean, I think I went swimming naked, but you're in the ocean. Like, it's feel like that's a rite of passage whether you're drinking or not, right? There's no exciting sexual story. I have nothing that's... I'm worried about no showing terrible up. No regret. On it. No. No
0: crashed cars. No. no. Yeah. You know,
1: we were walking. We were at a hotel. So we felt probably we felt a little liberty in drinking more. Sure. Um, it was a great night. I woke up the next morning and I just thought, I just had this moment where I'm tired of feeling like shit. Yeah. I have IBS. I have anxiety, mild depression. So you take this inflammatory product. yep yeah. And I always, always had GI issues, always, Mm -hmm. and horrible sleep. Shocking, it took me so long to figure out what it was, but it did. Well,
0: when you don't talk about it as a society, how are you supposed to know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, you're right, and um, when all your friends are doing it, you're not going to find a friend to sit you down and say, I'd love to chat with you because I love you.
0: Well, and even if you're, you don't have to be addicted for it to be high on your priority list of things that are important to you. Mm-hmm. And when when the booze is high on that list, because it's the key to socializing and the yeah. key to relaxing and the key to mourning and the key to celebrating, it's the key to everything. Yeah. The idea of removing that, just it just never comes up. Nope. It's just not something that we would consider. I mean, I know how many people are on antidepressants and they're drinkers. Yeah, Well, drinking is a depressant, so I know. I'm not saying you don't need to be on antidepressants, but... Maybe you don't. Maybe yeah. if you took this away before yeah. you added this in, you wouldn't need to for add For sure. In. Who knows?
1: And, you know, as moms, what message do we get more than anything? Well, if you're a mom, you can only do that with a glass of Pinot. Yeah, yeah. So there's the culture. It's been set. You, you immerse yourself in it, and you can't see what's on the other side of the tree, right? So I woke up, and I said, ah, oh, God, I'm just done. She didn't feel good, and we said, you know, let's just, let's just quit for 30 days. And see what happens. We downloaded an app, you know those apps that will track your money. Yeah, the best part of those apps.
0: Absolutely.
1: And um, I'm sure I wasn't honest about how much money I was spending (laughs) because I didn't want to see that figure. But we did that, and I'm gonna tell you in all sincerity. A week in, my sleep changed.
0: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, and
1: I'd say about two and a half, maybe three weeks in, I did not have an IBS episode. And in the year and a half or whatever it is, I've had maybe three,
0: as compared to daily, daily, daily. Goodness! So for me,
1: my sleep was a massive wake-up call, for lack of a better, for lack of a better phrase. And I thought, oh wow, I have not woken up at two a.m. and stayed up till four or five or six a.m. worrying about. shit.
0: So I was going to. I was just going to ask, would you attribute that? So is that sleep? Just sleep or sleep and anxiety? That's the combination of the two, yes?
1: Well, here, so it was sleep, but I think the sleep I would wake up because, you know, I'm now processing all the liquor, the booze, sugar, and then I would be up thinking about shit, and that would just take on a life of its own. So they both, I think, go hand in hand. Sure. So the sleep improved. My GI track improved, and I thought, this is kind of all I needed to know to say what the hell have you been doing, yeah. right? And I thought, well, I'm just going to keep going. Who knows what this will happen? Who knows what will happen? Well, what happened was the, a second frying pan to the face, right? Because when you have anxiety and mild depression and you're dealing with all your shit, you know, with wine and vodka or what have you, right. and you remove that, mm-hmm. well, there it is front and center. Yeah. And my mom had died in 2016. And I never fully processed the grief Because it's easy not to process the grief when you're drinking. Absolutely. And so what I had to learn was, oh, now I have all of this grief and anxiety and all of these things, and I need to go through it. Yeah. Right? It's like I was telling a friend that that children's book, Going on a Bear Hunt, every obstacle they come in front of, it's like, well, we can't go around it. We can't go under it. We'll have to go through it. Yeah. And that's truly and, it, and what it is. I think it's
0: amazing for us drinkers how much we don't realize like I, if you had asked me four <laughs> years ago before I quit drinking you know are you you got a lot of baggage you're pushing down I would have said no yeah. man I'm as I'm an open book I I have no issues I've processed everything in real time mm-hmm. but I hadn't mm-hmm. had a natural emotion in quite a few years because mm-hmm. you know in decades really because even even in our sober times when we're drinkers, mm-hmm. that alcoholic brain or that yeah. alcohol-affected brain is, isn't working properly. Yeah. And we know if I can just get to 5 o'clock or yeah. I can just get to Saturday yeah. or whatever without addressing this thing. Yeah. Now, this is all going on in the background, right? We're not yeah. ever admitting this to right. ourselves. 100%. If I can just get to that point, then I can make it all go away for right. a little while. Right. And, yeah, right. it's sitting with the emotions and knowing there's nothing I can do about it yeah. and but I know it'll go away yeah. if it's a bad one, I just got it I gotta go through it I gotta think it through I gotta take a walk I gotta yeah be at peace with it or whatever yeah and then something'll you know maybe the next emotion will be happiness or maybe it'll be something else but it's gonna change and it's gonna change yeah. naturally. Now I love it and I'm interested in your perspective on that now, I like when when I start to go into the darkness, as I call it. Yes. Um, I, okay, I won't go so far as to say I love going into the darkness, but when it happens, I know it's going to be a right. couple of days, maybe, and I just try to like learn something from it, and mm-hmm. I try to be real thoughtful and and you know, self care is a big issue in this mm-hmm. big topic in this in this area in this category of things, um, and guys aren't. Right, good at even understanding what it is but right. for me maybe that means I'm just gonna go for a long walk and yep. I'm just not gonna be around humans for a little while right. and whatever happens up there on the on the, the thing that's sitting on top of my shoulders just yeah. happens um, but I but the, the good news is I know it'll uh, it'll move work its on. way out and we'll move on that's mm-hmm. right have you so, so you've got your mother's yeah. death to, to mourn and to yeah. deal with and then I'm sure other things right
1: well, have, uh, yeah.
0: Have you learned to, like, embrace that and sit with it? And is it okay now?
1: It, it You know, it's an interesting thing. I, I uh, went and participated in a, an eight-week grief recovery workshop Ooh. because I knew that I was really struggling, not only with the death of my mom, which has been the most overwhelming grief I've ever experienced, but the death of my marriage, sure. right? So ne- it's hard to grieve a relationship when you're so angry, Yeah. you know what I mean? And all that... I. Think thought it was all anger but it was really grief masked as anger so I did this workshop it helped tremendously um yeah I do engage in a lot of self-love actually what I call it and that's only because the self-care industry is such a capitalistic industry you know and it's like 11 billion dollars and they want us to believe that You have to do this to feel good about yourself. Like buy buy
0: my bubble bath and everything will be fine. Exactly. If you do
1: this mask and you get this pedicure and you go on this trip to Fiji and you sit in silence at a $4,000 meditation retreat and those things are fine, but I think it just, I try to be mindful about why I'm engaging in things. So I do transcendental meditation and have been doing that for almost five years, which has been huge, but I would agree with you now when things come up, anxiety is kind of taking up more space and kind of picking up speed. I the first thing I do is get off of social media. Yeah, for sure, that is a dangerous place for me, and I know that. And it's a it's a weird relationship. Yeah. So that's the first thing, and then I'm also for me, I find a lot of um, safety and solace in in nature. So yeah, I get outside.
0: But you can you can feel. It coming, and you can know. I need oh, yeah. to meditate. I need to go.
1: Well, I meditate regardless, twice a day. Okay, so that happens all the time. But I can feel the panicky anxiety, the depression. The I know the signs. Is it seasonal? At all? You know, that's a great question. And I, yes, in a sense, it's seasonal around um, holidays that were important to my mom, that were mm. big family holidays. Sure. So that is that part. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But it's, it's, I, I can't say it's, you know, a winter and plus we have so much sunshine here. Yeah. I think it's a little,
0: yeah. But it is, Is you mentioned the holidays that were important to your mom. It's amazing to me how strong our subconscious mind really is because it, I'm, I'm going a slightly different direction here, but in sobriety, when I, you know, I can go through Friday and Saturday night, I've done that what hundreds or thousands of times now Mm -hmm. um not thousands hundreds of times now sober and it doesn't affect me at all yeah but every time we come around to a holiday that i've only i'm three years sober now so i might have only come through that holiday twice sober Mm -hmm. it's it's not so much that there's a temptation to drink but Mm -hmm. there's there's a a sadness that it's different than it used to be and I'm like, what's going on here? I haven't, I haven't had anything to drink in years now. Yeah. But, well, I also haven't had Christmas Eve, but twice in all of that time That's when I was sober. Sure. So I think it, I, I can totally understand where the holidays that were important mm-hmm. to your mom will would kind of haunt you. Oh, yeah. For longer than just the, the, the pure mourning process. Yeah. You know, every time the holiday comes around, it's going to be there for you. Yeah. So you went through mm-hmm. the 30 days. Um, all these things got better, yeah, yeah. and then did you did you just say that's it?
1: You know, for me, once my sleep, I noticed a, a positive change in sleep and it's GI stuff. It was I don't want to say no brainer because that diminishes it, but it really was something where I had to sit down and go, "Why would I start?" Yeah, I know how harmful it's been to my brain and my body. I've seen how great I feel without it. Why would I start? Yeah. And what I realize now, so the 30 days turns into 60 and 90 and 120, is the things that would get me tripped up would be the loss of friendships. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of grief that goes along with choosing not to drink. Yeah. And and that's been hard. It's sad, really. Yeah. It's really sad. It's been wonderful because I've made new friendships and I've bonded with people who have come to me and said, I'm I'm also not drinking. Yeah. And that opens up a new window to our the depth that we go. But you know, when you're in mom culture yeah. and you have a community of moms or dads, as the case may be, and you start to notice that people are you're not involved anymore. Yeah. That's you know, it's it's an interesting thing yeah. to, to see those friendships change or really dissolve completely. Yeah. And I've had to tell myself, well, if if they're dissolving completely, then it is a clear sign that alcohol was the only glue that we had.
0: I've definitely had that same experience. I find it interesting. Some of the people that were the heaviest drinkers in my life that were the people that when you'd see them walk into a house party, you'd go, oh, I'm glad that person's here because that means I can let loose and I'll have a drinking buddy. Some of those people, certainly I've had some relationships that have faded away, Mm -hmm. just as you described but some of them have been the most supportive and most interested mm. in what's going on. And But the bottom line is all the relationships change. Yes. I know for, for a period of time when I was trying to get sober unsuccessfully, I said, I want nothing in life to change except I just won't have a beer in my hand. I want to yeah. go same routine, same relationship, same everything. And that was wishful thinking. That's yeah. just not possible. Everything in your life changes yeah. to some degree when you stop drinking. But... but it's been such a pleasant surprise to see how there's, there is sadness about some mm-hmm. lost relationship, but about how others have morphed yeah. into something never expected. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think in many cases when, when that happens, the person, they might not be addressing their drinking right. issue, but they got something else going on. And so when they see you taking something, um, and addressing it, mm-hmm. that then the other thing that they're addressing that may, they may or may not be willing to talk about, it just it just creates this bond because right. You know, we all know everyone's got something going on whether they're willing to talk about it or not.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: 100%. So, um would you do you describe yourself as I'm sober for life, or I'm just—I just don't just not, not drinking right now. Like if you somebody know, I asks you,
1: feel like that AA guy would tell me to shut up and never say that. <laughs> I'm worried about saying
0: it. One day at a time. But, don't say anything but yes, one day at a time. You know,
1: this is what I can say now. I don't know if you know anything about the enneagram. That's an entirely different conversation. But a little. A little <laughs> I'm an enneagram eight, which is all you need to know. But it, what's so what's interesting for me and my personality is I have the ability to just stop. I also have a very addictive personality, so I have the ability to go all in, and then when I decide I'm done, to be fully done. And so I sit with you across from you today saying, I feel really good in my body and heart and brain telling you, I don't want or need or desire another drink. Yeah. But you know what I mean? But that's just
0: going to be what it is. Like, it's that's where what you're going it, to leave it. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, don't, I don't spend a lot of energy on it because well, I feel you, like that's going to create stress. Yeah, why that's lock yourself in a
0: box? Why not just... Yeah. I mean, you're living your best life and this yeah. is part of living your best life right Exactly.
1: Now. And I know for me that alcohol didn't really bring a lot of benefits. But the benefits that I'm receiving and that I'm able to give to people by showing up this way are just, it's, they're too great.
0: How much of a component in what you do for a living was alcohol? Is it hard for you to get on stage without a couple of drinks in you? Or did you not do that?
1: Yeah. You know, what's funny about that is I, when I first started comedy, I, one night had maybe two drinks max, got on stage, did not like the way I felt. Really? And I've, I don't drink before I, well, and I just stopped at that point. I did not really drink if I had to do comedy. Um, most I would a, drink in most... my shows because we were sitting. It was more of a talk show. Sure. It was a different okay. vibe. But I felt dull a little. And I felt, um, for me, picking up on the audience's energy and reading the audience is such a crucial part of yeah. doing stand-up well. That, you know, alcohol is numbing that. How I,
0: I, I get the sense, and I don't know, maybe you do. But there's a lot of people that are faking it when Mm. they're, like, I watch Stephen Colbert fairly religiously. He, to me, is hilarious. And he will often, specifically when he's talking about the president, he will have his glass of whiskey that he will, and sometimes he'll down it, and then keep going on with the monologue. And I, you know, I'll watch him and he he gets sharper and sharper as the monologue goes along. That's iced tea. He's, he's, he's pretending that that's whiskey. Yeah. And, um, be. yeah, I, I think. I I don't know, maybe there was a time when it was, it was in fashion to, to be drunk on stage, but it seems like even the people that are, are pretending, they are trying to engage with the audience, just like you said, and trying to remain sharp. So I bet a lot of that's, but a lot of that's fake. Now, yeah. cocaine, that's a whole different issue. Well, that's, of course, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: but, but yeah, so I don't, so I don't, I mean, I don't see myself, I just don't have a desire yeah. to drink. I don't have, and this will be a conversation for another podcast because that brings up now sober dating yes. and sober relationships. Yeah. And that's an entirely different conversation. And
0: a very interesting one.
1: It is an interesting one and it's real and it's it's, I think, the reason why most people don't stop drinking, to be honest with you. Yeah, and you talk about our stuff with intimacy, and how alcohol, right, that helps with that, right? Yeah. It kind of, and so removing that is a, talk about being vulnerable.
0: Well, and sober sex and sober dating that that carries into people that are, that remain in a relationship as well and go through this because the sobriety changes changes the whether it's a relationship or you're meeting people the first time. It's just something we've never done. Yeah, you know, since we were like nine or eleven or twelve yeah. or something right yeah and so we just don't know how and we got to figure it out yep well will you come back and talk about that sometime i would love to that would be great yes debbie so before we go mm-hmm. tell me uh, uh the mom's open mic yes am i saying that right is that... You,
1: it mom's on the mic mom's on the yeah mic. but it's the same concept it's an open mic for yeah why didn't i write it
0: down so That's i could okay. have done it right um, when, when is it?
1: So that is February 24th. Oh. So it's very soon. So
0: we do have some Denver. We have a little bit Denver, of time. We, We've got some locals that listen to the podcast. Yeah, so, so if they wanted to get tickets, what would your recommendation be?
1: Um, you can go, well, if you're a Facebook person, you can do that. Go on and find me on Facebook. I should probably get this up on my website. <laughs> if you go to Eventbrite and then backslash moms on the mic, it should come up. Okay. Yeah, it should come up.
0: Excellent. And your website for everyone is Debbie Shearspeaks.com and yes. Shear is S C H E E R, Debbie A lot of great information. Another thing we'll have to talk about the next time you come come on is your auctioneering career. Yes. Because there's humor there and there's speaking there. But that's a little different. Not every comedian I know is also an auctioneer. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, we'll talk about that next time. Debbie, thanks so much for being here. Thank
1: you. I appreciate it. All
0: right. For my good friend, Debbie Shear, I'm Matt Salus for the Untoxicated Podcast. Mm -hmm. And we thank you for listening.